the capital is one of the most gorgeous places on earth. <laughs> and, you know, when I went on the House floor to speak about the Equality Act, which would expand the scope of the Civil Rights Act to include the LGBTQ community, I could not help but feel the weight of history on my shoulders. And every time I'm outside the Capitol, every time I'm on the House floor, every time I'm in my office, which was the same office that John F. Kennedy had in his time during the House, I cannot help but pinch myself. I cannot help but feel an overwhelming sense of awe and gratitude. The most important fact for me is that is that I'm making my mother happy. <laughs> <laughs> now, before I was Congressman Richie Torres or Councilman Richie Torres, I am the proud son of Deborah Bosselet. That's my overriding identity in my hierarchy of identities. We'd love to hear that. When I came from a freshman orientation, I had dinner with my mother, and she said, this is the first time I'm having dinner with a congressman. Mm. And I said, mine won't be the last. I am Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen. An in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, being Seen is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. To whom do we belong? What and who do we claim as our own? And who claims us? There is no one podcast episode that could ever do the Afro-Latinx experience justice. It is as rich, as complex, and as specific an experience as the histories, families, and cultures of Afro-Latinx people. While they have been invisibilized too often... Afro-Latinx people have defined, represented, and contributed to the narrative of what it is to be Latinx and what it is to be Black, helping to expand our visions of how and where we exist in the world outside of narrow understandings of American Blackness. Their manifestation, the space they occupy between, within, and around their various communities, challenges all of us to practice radical inclusivity to reject notions of choosing one part of ourself and to question the hierarchies we create inside of our own homes. This week, I'm sitting down with screenwriter and producer Stephen Canals, award-winning actor Wilson Cruz, and representative Richie Torres to talk about how interconnected identities shape our stories through the lens of the Afro-Latinx experience. Up first, representative Richie Torres. Well, for me, identity is intersectional rather than binary. And I'm living proof. And... When you're both Black and Latino, you feel like you belong to both categories and you feel like you belong to none at all. Uh, there's a sense in which you feel a kind of racial and ethnic homelessness because I have had to experience racial discrimination or colorism within the Latino community. And then I've had to face racism beyond it. And I remember when I first entered the city council, there's a caucus known as the Black Latino Asian Caucus. It's BLAC. And all the Black members of the caucus came together 
to speak about the need for a greater black representation in the leadership of the city council. And 10 minutes before the call began, I received a call from a colleague of mine telling me that my participation in the call was controversial. And I said, why is it controversial? It's because people are wondering whether you identify as black or Latino. And I said, why identify as both? Mm. And he said to me, well, you have to choose. <laughs> and I you know, said, so I, I refuse to be interrogated about my racial identity. You know, I reject the notion that it's either or. And then history repeated itself. So when I won my nomination for Congress, I came to discover that there was a wall of separation between the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, right? There was an unwritten rule that you could be either Black or Latino, but you could not be both. Mm. And, and I said, you can be both. <laughs> because people are both. <laughs> yes, and I refuse to choose one identity to the exclusion of the other. I insist on embracing the full intersectionality of who I am. And so I became one of the first members of Congress to break the barrier and join both the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. How do we come into an understanding of our own identity? What do we claim as our history? In what ways do the spaces we choose to occupy ensure that not only we are seen, but so are our people and our places that we call home? Award-winning screenwriter and producer and co-creator of Pose, Stephen Canals. When I think of Afro-Latinx, the first thing that comes to mind is an acknowledgement of where my family comes from, that there's a long, rich history that I am a part of, and that to specifically have family members who were born on the island of Puerto Rico, that that's more than just about being from that island. You know, that your modern-day Puerto Rican is a mix of the Spaniards who brought over African slaves and also killed off the Taino Indians who once inhabited the island. And so, you know, for me, centering the Afro part of my identity is acknowledgement that my ancestors, my forebears, once were on the island of Africa and were brought over to the island of Puerto Rico. And, and what does that then mean in terms of our identity as a people? You know, we, we often sort of glaze over the Afro-Caribbean identity and how important it is and how salient it is. And when we see, particularly for me as a television writer and producer, when we see representations of the Latin diaspora, who are those individuals that often get centered? And why is it that those folks who get centered more often than not don't look like people, like members of my family, many of whom certainly look much more black than they do white passing, you know? And so that's, that's the place I go to when I think about Afro-Latinx and I think about people who hold that identity specifically. So when we talked to Richie Torres, it was interesting because he had just written his op-ed about how they were trying to stop him from joining the Hispanic Caucus and the Black Caucus because 
they were like, uh, you can't be members of both. So he had to go through this whole process of trying to be members of both of these caucuses and both of these communities. How do you think about moving between the two or the intersection of both, particularly in the U.S.? Oh, that's a fascinating question. It's interesting because I grew up most of my life, particularly like as a young boy growing up in the South Bronx in the 1980s as solely identifying as Hispanic, even though I was hyper aware that my mother is Afro-Latina, very clearly articulated that she's a Black Puerto Rican. It wasn't until I was much older, to be quite frank, it wasn't until I was in college where I really thought about intersectionality and specifically the intersections of identity and what it would mean for my mother who has you know, brown skin and has kinky hair, what does that mean for her to identify as a Black Puerto Rican? And that there's a distinction compared to my father's side of the family, for example, who are white-passing Puerto Ricans, who frankly you wouldn't even know were Puerto Rican unless they told you their identity. It's interesting now to think about myself and how I now navigate space. I think it was so important for me to add Afro in front of Puerto Rican when thinking about my own identity or to specifically identify as Afro-Latinx because I want to acknowledge not only, again, my forebears and that rich history, but I also want to acknowledge my mom. Award-winning actor Wilson Cruz. And so, which leads me to... My own lived experience, which is very specific, right? And I always had a, a real issue growing up talking about how I identified myself, right? And I know that sounds surprising to might sound surprising to some people since I was so aware at 19, but before 19, like 12 in my teens, I felt at sea. Because when you look at me, I think it's pretty obvious that I'm Afro-Latino, right? I mean, it's written all over my hair. Um, it's, it's, in the, it's at the width of my nose. You know, I'm about to, to do a, a Maya Angelou poem in a second. Yes. But my family, my immediate family doesn't look like this. My parents and my brothers have more Spanish-European features, right? They have straighter hair. They have lighter skin. They, you know, they could pass whereas I can't. And so I had to look outside of my immediate nuclear family to be able to relate. And so then the, the second part of that is I was born in New York City in Brooklyn. By the time I was in my teens, I was in California. And in New York City, if I had stayed there, I would have been surrounded by people who looked like me. But in California, in 60 miles east of Los Angeles, in a suburb, I was the only Puerto Rican person they'd ever seen in their lives because it was all Mexicans and Black people and white people and some Asians. That's what the Inland Empire looked like. And so when I looked to identify and to create a community for myself, my immediate response was with the African-American community because that's how that's, I identified myself in them and in that experience and understood that it was my experience too because when someone looks at me they see them especially where i was at the time mm -hmm. and so my, all of my friends were african-american the people i dated <laughs> my girlfriends were both black girls 
<laughs> God bless them. They're still in my life and I love them. <laughs> that was the community that, that not only did I identify with, but that took me in. They saw me in them. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in my own personal life understood that I needed to know them. Yes. And took me under their wing and allowed me to have that experience with them so that I could feel like I belonged. And I only ever felt like I belonged at that age with my family and with my friends who were in the African-American community. And then, you know, it expanded as years went by, but that's, that's, who, I, that's who I saw. So, and at the time, I also have to be honest, I, n- I had never heard of the term Afro-Latino, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't taught at school. There wasn't something that was being spoken about. And when I, I remember when I first heard the word, I was like, oh, you know, I, it was like a bell went off. And it was shortly after, I remember that I heard it for the first time, shortly after one of my very good girlfriends, not my actual girlfriend, I never knew what to do with this hair growing up. Like my parents didn't know what to do with it. I thought I had to straighten it at some point or whatever. I had, I was lost. And it was in my junior year of high school when Tawana Tashika Miller. Come on, Tawana. Who was in choir with me pulled me aside and you know she was the most beautiful girl at our school she was in the cheerleading squad and she was in the choir with me and finally I had lost like 10 pounds over the summer and I came back to 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 junior year looking a little different and she was like okay so all of this is working but I can't take that thing on your head anymore so meet me after school and so she took me to my first black barbershop and she sat me down in a barber chair And she said, please help him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and she explained how to fade my hair. And, uh, you know, and so I really came into my own. I really discovered who I was through those relationships, through that exchange. Becoming history, defining history. It's often presented as fact, but it's beholden to the teller. I became in 2021, the first LGBTQ member of the New York City congressional delegation. And what I find remarkable is, is the following, you know, who would have thought that the first LGBTQ member of Congress would come not from the village or from Chelsea or from Hell's Kitchen, uh, but from the Boogie Down Bronx. Yeah. That to me represents a distinctive breakthrough in LGBTQ representation. You know, in the history of the United States Congress, there have been about 130 Latinx members, and none of them were openly LGBTQ until I was sworn in on January 3rd. In the history of Congress, there have been about 160 Black members, and none of them were openly LGBTQ until Mondaire Jones and I were sworn in on January 3rd. Um, So there's no question that, you know, I blazed a trail. And one of my favorite quotes is if if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably going to be on the menu. One of the many shared spaces of the Black and Latinx community is our erasure from the past and present narratives of HIV and AIDS in America. One of the many effects of this has been that we all continue to be deeply impacted by HIV infections in disproportionate ways. In its three seasons, polls push back on this And they push back hard, insisting that we be seen, 
that we be valued, and that the experiences of Black, Latinx, and Afro-Latinx people be the lens. Stephen Canals is a manifestation of the power we hold when we get to define who gets a seat at the table. I think that even if Pose was leaning all the way into the trauma only, that still would have had value because when thinking about HIV AIDS, specifically in the 1980s in New York City, which was ground zero for the epidemic, we have never seen black and brown people centered when talking about that. We've only ever talked about it from the cis, white, gay experience. That's always the lens with which we use to investigate that specific period of time. And so the reality is that even if Pose had been really dark and just a bleak, morose show, there still would have been value in that because we've never taken the lens, which has always been firmly planted and pointed at one particular community and shifted it just 10, 15 degrees to the right to see that there's a whole other group of individuals who are also existing at that same time period in the same environment who are also being impacted. And in many ways, we're worse off. When we think about race and class and how those two identities intersect when dealing with, specifically when talking about HIV AIDS, and we saw it all happen again this past year in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, i.e. COVID-19, that once again, you know, Black, brown, and Asian folks were the ones who were the most impacted and once again had a lack of access to quality medical care, you know, and as a result of, you know, a long, rich history in this country of lack of housing and employment opportunities, that all of those things have impacted and the ways with which we now are are living in this country. And so I think that while all of that is heavy and it's dark and it's it isn't always fun to talk about, it's important. You know, it's essential that we're engaging in those conversations. My so-called life first aired in August of 1994. It might not have been recognized at the time, but in retrospect, it did something extraordinary. It brought to life a character that was one of, if not the, first representation of the queer Afro-Latinx experience on the screen. And that character was loved deeply. Far too few leading Afro-Latinx characters have followed in the gigantic footsteps of Enrique, a.k.a. Ricky Vasquez. We could never talk about entertainment and representation without talking about Ricky Vasquez. <laughs> That portrayal was a first in so many ways, right? First openly gay man, playing an openly openly gay man, and the list goes on. How would you summarize the ways in which you saw and experienced entertainment having the power to actually shift not only culture, but the way we think, how we view the world, both in your own life and the lives of those that watched? So I have to preface all this by saying that I will always cry when I talk about Ricky Vasquez, so be aware of that. Be okay with it. Be prepared. Okay, we okay with it. The thing about Ricky Vasquez, which takes me back to this 
idea of specificity is that he was very specific and I needed him to be very specific. And he was different than I was and younger than I was when I played him. But what I loved about him in the description of the character and when I worked on it with Winnie Holzman was that this was a person who was living in the middle of everything, right? He was half Black, half Puerto Rican. He identified early on as bi. So he was, even in, even in terms of his sexuality or how he thought of his sexuality, he was in the middle, right? He was placing himself in the middle. This was somebody who was allowing themselves to define themselves. He didn't have any guidance from an older sibling or or parent because that relationship was fraught. So here was someone who was inventing themselves and was doing it in a a, a pretty Caucasian (laughs) surrounding, right? And so I always thought of him as someone who was searching in search of, in search of acceptance, in search of himself, in search of true love and friendship. Like this was somebody who was hungry for that. And so for me, I felt that the more specific I was with him, the more people would be able to identify with elements of him because he was somebody who was trying to find his way and was in the middle of these communities. What I loved about him was that At first, I think he was the kind of character that made people nervous because they didn't understand or they made assumptions about who he was because of, you know, their biases about sexuality. But what I loved about it was that they came into that with those biases, but he, through his own innate quality of needing to be loved, to needing to understand that he is lovable yeah, was something universal that I thought people could latch on to and was his story for me. In 19 episodes, you know, a lot of people complained about that that series was 19 episodes and it ended so quickly, but the magic for me and Winnie was that we actually, in 19 episodes, created an entire arc. There was a beginning, there was a middle, and there was an end. He started out confused. He didn't know who he was. In the middle, we see him struggling with it and and falling and suffering. But we see him overcome that by knowing and accepting more of himself. And that was the message that I wanted to send to young people and and to people who, who were discovering someone like him for the first time. That this wasn't somebody who you needed to fear. This was somebody that we needed to protect that we needed to give permission to live up to their potential. That's so beautiful. I love this point around him needing to know that he was worthy of love. And how many queer, bi, trans, non-binary folk, particularly Black, Brown, Afro-Latinx folk, need to know that we are worthy of love, too. I'll admit to this, you know, um, I needed to know that I was lovable. I needed to play him and relive those years and learn that lesson myself. And I sacrificed a lot to, to learn it. And it was the best decision I ever made, right? Mm-hmm. He was such a gift. I'm sorry. He was such a gift because I think in many ways, 
I took my broken heart and served it up because I knew there were other broken hearts who needed to see that they weren't alone. And I needed to hear that I wasn't alone, that there were other people out there who were experiencing that and understood and identified. And I did, but I didn't learn, I didn't hear from them right away. I heard from them after they were of legal age and we were at the nightclub in 1998 when we were older and I got to meet the people who were affected by by him. Because when the show was on the air, I didn't hear any of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was gratifying. And to, to see how he's held up, you know, now is one of those most moving things of in my life, really, that 25 years later, he, you know, when people talk about that show, when people talked about that show then, they didn't talk, they weren't talking about him. You know, he was like the sidekick of the sidekick. He was, you know, in the background. But 25 years later, when people rediscovered the show, it was gratifying for me to, um, to see they finally understood. Thank you for the portrayal. And if if we've connected with Ricky, it's because you connected with Ricky and therefore we can connect with him and therefore connect with you. I forgot to ask Stephen if he'd watched Wilson Cruz growing up or if the stories that Stephen and Representative Richie Torres are fighting for in Hollywood and in Washington were in some ways inspired by the places they named as home in the Bronx's kids. But I'd like to imagine that they did, and they were, because so much of this work of creating community is cyclical. A series of representations, inspirations, and archives that are left behind are created alongside others, which become the next link in the chain. The Afro-Latinx individuals from Poles are part of that, They find themselves in the narrative so that we can find ourselves there too. I have always said that I will consider, let me take that back, let me rephrase this, which is during the first season, I spent a lot of time sharing with folks that I thought Pose would be considered a success in my eyes when the actors on our show are no longer solely seen as trans performers, but just as performers. And that the women specifically on our show who happen to be having a trans experience will go out into the world and be cast as any woman because they're talented and because they've earned the right. That's shifted for me, you know, over the course of three seasons. And, and I have a, a much, much larger understanding now. I've, I've redefined success. And so, you know, it, it's bigger than solely just that. I also think for me, success with the show would also be seeing more trans writers and directors being given great opportunities to tell their own story and to create content. And that has that remains to be seen. You know, I'm still waiting for that moment. But I think specifically when it comes to the cast, I want them to be able to have sustainable careers in this industry. You know, and I think one of the things that I've behind the scenes have been very vocal about, you know, when I'm talking to networks and I'm talking to executives, when I'm having conversations with individuals who are the gatekeepers in this industry is that these women were not playing themselves on this show. You know, I think it's easy to overlook their work and their contributions to the show because everyone sort of says, oh, 
it's just a trans person playing a trans character. And it's like, they weren't playing a version of themselves. And the reality is, even if they were, how is that any different than their cis counterparts? Because the reality is that all of us are always, especially when you work in the creative arts, you're always having to locate yourself within a narrative, right? It's the thing I always do. I'm always having to find myself in story. And so any of their cisgendered counterparts are doing the exact same thing. You know, you're always trying to find a little kernel of truth, a little bit of yourself in the character that you're playing. And that's going to help you then inhabit who that person is and portray them on camera. And that's what our incredible actors have done. That's what all these women have been doing for the past three seasons. And so, you know, I hope that we can sort of shift away from this narrative and get to a place where, you know, we acknowledge the fact that MJ Rodriguez, for example, has spent the last three seasons carrying the weight and the burden of this show on her shoulders all three seasons. That if MJ's performance as Blanca doesn't work, the show doesn't work, you know? And that MJ, as a young Afro-Latin trans woman, is not a mother in real life to a house of a bunch of kids who perform in ballroom, you know? Like, that is not her experience. Like, she's just a normal girl from Jersey you know, who likes to walk around in jeans and and a white t-shirt. So I hope that we can kind of push past that narrative. We thank you. Our final question, an aspirational one. What do you think more stories of gay and queer and trans and bi, Afro, Latinx men might have the power to change in terms of how we think about family, community? And more, the bigger question, what stories do we um, have not yet seen? What do we need? What stories do we need to see? I mean, how long do you have? But, um, <laughs> you know, the thing, that the, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying, I want to see us experience everything because we do experience everything. Um, mm-hmm. But what I hunger for is the images that I saw on Noah's Ark, right, of two men of color, two people of color, loving and supporting each other. We see so little of that. You know, I love Anthony Rapp. He's my my boy and I wouldn't have it any other way. But I want to see more men of color loving each other. I want to see those relationships play out, played out um, and taken seriously on a wider scale. Mm-hmm. I think the messages we send about how men of color are allowed to show affection and vulnerability those are stories that that we need to see because we need to give people permission to be that especially men of color i think we send the message to young to young men especially that they have to be hard that they have to deny the the vulnerable part of themselves in order to survive and i don't believe that i think our vulnerability is our power it's our it is our armor it is what gets us through. It's how we relate to each other. It's how I see myself in you. It's how you see yourself in me. Our humanity is through our vulnerability. In the middle of Harlem, 10 blocks above 125th Street, off the two and three line at the corner of 135th and Malcolm X, sits the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Many of the great activists, thinkers, and creators have passed through its doors either in flesh or in word. People like Nikki Giovanni, James Baldwin, and W.E.B. Du Bois, to name a few. 
The heart of this part of the New York Public Library is a collection donated by Arturo Schomburg, a collection that has since grown to over 11 million items representing the African-American, African diasporic, and African experiences, and the Afro-Latinx experience. Arturo Schomburg was Black, and he was Puerto Rican. He was a proud, brilliant activist scholar. He was a Black Puerto Rican. Before him and since him, there have been and are currently too many to name extraordinary Afro-Latinx people building the legacy of their communities in the U.S. and beyond. Stephen Canals, Wilson Cruz, and Representative Richie Torres are part of that work. And we are grateful for them. Deeply, deeply grateful. Being Seen is produced by Harley and & Company and Darnell Moore and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare. Theme music is provided by Moses Sumney.